Hello, this is Evans Marajas, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. On this podcast, my guest will be soprano Talise Trevine. Talise, born in the West Coast area around San Francisco, educated in New York, and a world traveler as an artist. We'll be talking with Talise about her somewhat accidental career. She wanted really to be a ballerina to start. The career she avoided that her family wanted her to have, which was that of a lawyer, and her affection for new music, alongside her wonderful portrayals of the core repertoire. We'll also talk about what it's like to be the mom of a budding potential Major League Baseball player. My guest, Talise Trevine. Talise, uh, I think you're talking to us today from your relatively new home in Atlanta. Is that right? That is correct. How long have you been in Atlanta? Um, we actually just looked at the calendar. I think we're about two days over a month here in Atlanta. It's funny. It's only been it's been a very short while, but we have a long relationship with Atlanta. And I have family here, and um, my son plays baseball here, so. It's funny. It, it's new, but it's not new. It actually feels mm. very familiar. So, What was it like making a move in the middle of the current craziness of the COVID-19 epidemic? Were there things, special things you had to do as part of the move that you wouldn't normally have done? Yes. Um, I mean, in some ways, it's funny. I was um, blogging about this moving and, you know, all the times, moving in the times of COVID. <laughs> um, <laughs> in some ways, it was really um, complicated, but yet not complicated. I think that, you know, as opera singers, we're so used to setting up home mm-hmm. very quickly somewhere else um, all the time. I mean, we're often away from home more than not. So in terms of preparing to actually move house, um that really wasn't that difficult. Um, I actually was pretty methodical about the way that I packed. And um, <laughs> my mother would laugh and she says, you know, you, you know, you clean, you do spring cleaning like every quarter. <laughs> so <laughs> for an opportunity to purge anything. So it was really wonderful. And um, a side note is that I have an, a huge obsession with tiny homes and um I do dream of the day that I am an empty nest of buying some really amazing land and putting a tiny home on that land. So I'm always game to get rid of anything that is excess. Um, and I also, you know, I mean, my kid is pretty practical in that way. If it's like anything that has to do with baseball, he's good. If it's not, then he doesn't need it. So <laughs> it was really easy to pare him down uh, and move quickly. Of course, you know, I was moving from New Jersey, which was the heart of oh, yeah. you know, the biggest epicenter in this pandemic. And that was interesting, but it, it just took some planning and finding the right movers to come in. They were very methodical about it. They did not think that my Virgo craziness was odd in any way. They had on, <laughs> you know, their gloves and I had little booties for them to come in and out of the house and, uh, you know, they all had provided health checks and things like that. I mean, you can get that. You, and, and I think people need not feel funny about asking for those things. I think most people are appreciative. If anyone is planning on moving during this time, um, ask for health checks, ask for their, you know, their procedures, how they uh, go about things. Um, it was actually relatively easy in that once you get past all of the minutia. Um, but... I also think it was meant to happen, which also made it easy. Um, we've been sort of working our way south and towards baseball, I'd say, for the past 11 years. So it really doesn't seem that odd to me. And I'm much nearer to a ton of family, which is really nice. So, And so it sounds also, I mean, if I were to ask one of my standard questions at the end, which is not one of my standard questions, who is someone you'd like to meet? It sounds like Marie Kondo is someone like you, you'd like to meet. <laughs> the queen, the queen of small houses and queen, queen of, uh, if you haven't used it in six months, throw it away, right? <laughs> Marie Kondo and I are best friends. She just doesn't know it yet, but hopefully someone will let her know. Absolutely. <laughs> heart. I, I've been watched that show. Um, 
I might have been in Cincinnati when I binged that, actually. And now I'm thinking about it. Because I, that's like the only time that I really have time to watch television is when I'm at work and I get to come home from work and then I can just not have to cook, not have to be on baseball mom duty. Um, so I usually watch everything in one fell sweep. I mean, anyone that's getting rid of anything and purging and talking about sparking joy is definitely a girl after my own heart. So, <laughs> ah. Well, and we're going to get to your baseball mom activities because I know it's an important part of your life. But I also wanted to ask something that you triggered when you were talking about setting up home. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people, I know myself in my heaviest traveling days um, of, let's say, 10 and 15 years ago, when I was always on the road, I took a little, so there was always a little corner of my suitcase for uh, a few talismans from home. Something like, you know, a candle for my hotel room, obviously photos of those I love, uh, maybe a piece of, uh, of material or something, Some a few things, like maybe four or five things that always reminded me of home that no matter how Holiday Inn-like my accommodations were, <laughs> I could I could make it personal. So did you, do you, have you traveled over the years with a few talismans that have, that have connected you back? Yes. I mean, I've, I've had to get to a point where I limit them because I have, you know, a few special things now, but, um, it's really pretty simple. Um, I do travel with Palo Santo and I always burn that the minute I get into a new space to clear the energy. Um, Mm -hmm. I always have a good book with me because I usually keep about seven or eight on my side table. Um, I have yet to like read one book straight through. It's, it's, it's frustrating and just I have to live with myself. So, but I'm. Can you say OCD? <laughs> <laughs> so I try to read like a chapter here, a chapter of this one, and then I'll read a chapter of that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I do travel with one of my favorite photos of um, of my son and my favorite uh, travel blanket, which is always on my whatever bed that I have at the time. Uh, and and a travel candle. There is a um, a favorite candle that I that I get from Whole Foods that I just can't be without, and I always have that with me. Just because. So you right. So you set up a little bit of a nest, as it were, because I think one of the things for uh, any artist on the road, anyone on the road, is you can easily feel disconnected from home base, and so those Absolutely. few things that will reconnect you there, even when you're away, are very helpful. Absolutely. I I think it's essential in order. I mean, listen, I'm not saying anything new to you, but we give up so much for this career and this passion that we have that I think um, it's really important that when you are not on the stage or in production, that you find those things which ground you and you carry them with you throughout your, I mean, it's our passion, but it's also our job. And I think in order to show up to your job and do it correctly and well to the high degree that we want it to be presented in, um, I, I think you need to come as your best self. And I'm always very keenly aware of remembering who my, who Talise is outside of stage. Um, because I think that affects who I am as a character who, when I, abandon all of those things and I become someone else. I think if the the lines get blurry for me, it makes it very difficult to do my job. Um, So I need to be very clear who I am offstage and very clear who I am onstage equally separately. You come originally from the San Francisco Bay Area. And if I remember correctly, uh, you first trod the boards not as a singer, but as a dancer, right? You you studied ballet as a kid. (laughs) Yeah, I remember the last time I mentioned it to someone, they thought, ooh, would you ever be willing to sing on point? And I said, mm, not anymore. <laughs> but, um, actually, if there's a couple of different past lives that I've had. But yes, I mean, I really was certain that dance was going to be it for me. So I, from what age did this obsession take you? Five or six or later? Uh, I was six at the time and it was a friend of mine I had a friend Tanina she was absolutely stunning and gorgeous and long and lean and everything that Balanchine would have loved and everything that I am not um and I wanted to be just like Tanina and Tanina was in this ballet class in Palo Alto and my mother you know just thought okay she's been 
My mother's a trooper. Anything that I wanted to try <laughs> or that I threw out there, she just, you know, went, went along with it. So, um, I really, but I really fell in love with it. I think, I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I think everything turned out for the best, but, um, because I probably would have been more engaged and in love with contemporary. Um, I wasn't exposed to Martha Graham. I mean, it was very basic. I mean, I had, hmm. you know, old Russian teacher who reminded me all the time that, you know, my feet weren't correct and they had to be bound and, um, diet French water. <laughs> Just oh my goodness. It's all those terrible things that, you know, all those, I'm probably gonna get myself into trouble, but all that, that Balanchine era where every dancer looked like they were one sandwich away from death, which <laughs> no, is not me. So, and a pack, and a pack of cigarettes too. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah, exactly. Right. But then I held tight to it for a while. I remember when I first moved to New York, uh, to go to school and had school of music, I was still trying to hang pretty tight with, um, you know, the, some dance classes at, at steps. I mean, I would go religiously, like I'd, go to school during the day and I'd go home, you know, grab something to eat quickly. And then I'd run downtown 72nd street and go to steps and take classes at night, like one or two at least. And, um, I re, you know, I, I realized then that it was just my love of movement and body, but probably was not my passion, probably would have been very ill suited and my career would be over by now, long over. So, um, <laughs> you know, you can only do yeah, before in Giselle for so long. Well, and you raise, you know, you raise a very interesting point there because you know we often say that the in the world of artistic life, I mean, conductors live into their eighties and nineties. They, I mean, I often say that conductors lead long lives because they want to be long. They want to be alive long enough to see all their rivals die. But I think it's you know, it is as it, pianists. I think are next in terms of their longevity, and then you know you reach a slightly law of diminishing returns in the more the violent the string players and wind players can go on for a very long time. But when it comes to singers. They have a shorter career. And of course, the mm -hmm. only shorter careers in the arts other than singers are dancers and gymnasts, basically, Absolutely. because they're so dependent on physical agility and being in top physical shape. But, uh, but I'm sure, and you've probably reflected on this from time to time, but would you share with us a couple of ways in which you feel your dance training and your dance background helped inform the way you trained and the way you operated as a singer? Oh, I definitely think it was probably the best long investment that I made. I mean, first of all, I didn't really choose singing. Um, I always hmm. say that chose me. However, I am so grateful because I was always interested in telling a story, but I've, and I've always told a story on stage, but just in another, you know, via another vehicle. So, um, just being aware of your body, um, which I think is so important on stage. I mean, it's it's an acoustical art form where the audience is sat extremely far away from you, and yet you have to communicate big emotions and big ideas. And I think if you are not aware, especially being only 5'4", um, <laughs> if you're not aware of the space that you take up or lack thereof, it definitely diminishes the experience in the theater. I mean, otherwise we just sit at home and listen to recordings. And I think, um, you know, we are singing athletes, we're singing actors. It's not just about the voice you want to trans. I mean, people want to see the emotion as well. And that is very present in your body. I think being aware of vocal production, solid vocal production is definitely dependent upon a, a certain physical awareness. Um, I always say, I think anyone can sing. It's just it's learning to unlearn the poor physical traits and things that get in the way that inhibit the voice's natural <laughs> progression is what you spend years learning when you go to conservatory. I mean, I was getting so out of the way, basically yeah, get out of your own way. I spent, I think an entire year trying to get rid of my California twang as my <laughs> voice teacher uh, then at the time, Adele Addison, who I, I loved dearly. She was a huge mentor and um, influence on me and, and still is today. In fact, um, I find myself going back to things that she, that she taught me and things that were said um, 
in my early years of training at Manhattan School with her that are so prevalent to me today as I, you know, face a new type of um, a, a new type of expression in our art form right now, which is limited. Um, I'm so grateful that I've had that that background, and she was she too was also very aware of the body, and she always took to spoke to me in in ways that were um, keeping me aware of where the breath is coming from, where it should not, what it should not feel like. Um, and that, that was really very helpful to learn early on. Um, and she is still, is Miss Addison still with us? I think she is, isn't she? She is still with us. She's very much removed from, um, from the scene. I mean, actually I could see that happening. I think I might have been one of her, final four students at Manhattan School of Music when I went to mm-hmm. Manhattan School many moons ago. Um, and she was basically teaching at home at that point. She rarely came into school. Most of my work with her was in her home and living room and um, also in Aspen. She took me to Aspen Music Festival where we really, I mean, just got to deep dive into some of the most amazing work. And I learned about chamber music and um just coloring and true artistry. I mean, I just think back. It's funny. I was thinking back the other day about my start and I thought, wow, Ned Roram used to sit in my voice lessons. Like, you know, just as one does Ned Roram mm-hmm. right there. Um, and then we'd have, <laughs> we'd finish singing and then we'd go in her kitchen and cook. So, um, wow. it was, it really was a golden era. And I, um, it, it was a really beautiful time and a great time to learn to be an artist around, I mean, to have George Shirley and Hilda Harris as people who I could just call up and speak to regularly was, uh, it was a huge, it was a huge influence on who I am today, you know. And I, Adele Addison was a pioneer, thanks oh. not only to her talent, but to a couple of really important early supporters, most notably the conductor Robert Shaw. Absolutely. who was made a real point of hiring African-American singers, mm-hmm. two of his favorite soloists, uh, the tenor Seth McCoy and mm-hmm. Adele Addison and many, many others. And I remember reading when I was reading about Shaw's biography in anticipation of his 100th birthday when I was working at the Atlanta Symphony that uh, he made a point of saying, you know, if all of the singers of the Robert Shaw Chorale when he was in his touring days couldn't stay in a hotel, we're, we just weren't. We're coming to your town. That's all there is to it. Um, And I want to come back to Miss Addison and teaching at the Manhattan School. But we've, we've, when last we left our heroine, she was still a ballerina or at least an aspiring ballerina. When does she be, when does she become an aspiring soprano? Ah, it was my senior year in high school. That Uh, late? Wow. oh Oh, yes. It was just simply because I didn't. I, I had too many free periods. I passed out of everything in high school and you weren't allowed to have two free periods in high school. God forbid you should get in, you know. <laughs> well, an idle, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. So <laughs> You've got to pick another class, Missy. And I was going to be damned if I took home economics. That was not happening. So, um, which is so funny because I was so against any of that and that's, so who I am today, but I digress. So <laughs> I thought, well, you know, we, my high school, I was very fortunate, had a very large and still does um, very active arts community. We had an orchestra, a jazz band, a, um, a marching band, chamber org. There's a chamber orchestra. There were three choirs. There was um, wow. a group choir. I mean, so every year, at our school, they, I, I mean, I actually learned the Verdi Requiem my senior year because I was singing in the chorus. I mean, I mean, they did big things. I mean, I look back and I think, geez, you know, high schoolers, we were really, really fortunate. Um, and I actually learned the Forey Requiem as well. I remember that. Wow. Right already, which was actually very instrumental in my work with Adele Addison because she was very famous for singing the Forey Requiem. Um, but... So I joined up for this choir. I was like, well, whatever. I've been, you know, doing Oklahoma, you know, mouthing that I'm singing. That would be like the easy way out. Okay, fine. And literally, 
I think I was just, it was just my turn to get a solo. I mean, I, 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 we've talked about this. Um, Mark Shaw was my music director and a huge influence in my life. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, he was the one that pushed for me to audition for Manhattan School of Music. Uh, but I just said, why did you give me a solo? And he said, honestly, he said, you were just next in line. It was like, <laughs> I, I didn't know that you could sing. I imagine there was this girl and all right, you're next. And so, um, one day, uh, we had practice after school for this said concert. I don't even remember what it was that I was singing. And I guess he had called my mother and he said, um, I think you need to come down here. And she thought, oh my God, what has she like, come on, we're almost out of here. And now she's getting into trouble. So my mother comes down. Don't parents always think the worst? Isn't that so sad? But it can all, it's also often so true. <laughs> it's, it's true. I mean, because I know that I've certainly been thought like, oh no, something bad's happened. But mm-hmm. um, she says, she tells me that she remembered walking down the hallway to the choir room and the door was open. And she said, I heard, you know, this, you know, beautiful singing. And I thought, oh, that's a really sweet voice. And um, she was walking, walking with my younger sister at the time. And they were coming to meet this teacher, Mark Shaw. And she was, then I walk in the room and it's you. She said, but you don't even sing in the car. Like, I mean, what are you doing? And I didn't know because the way that the chorus stands, the way that the risers were in the room, I had no idea that she was at the door. And she said, mm. your sister and I were just standing there looking, going, who is this person? Because we've never even heard her sing before. Um, and then that led to him wanting me to drop out of being head of the cheerleading squad and, because he didn't—he thought I would yell my voice, scream my voice away at the games. So he would literally come to the games and watch me to make sure that I was mouthing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful image. How funny. He give me, he give me, you know, the two fingers. He's like, I'm watching you. I'm watching you. <laughs> um, but I mean, it was I. I then ended up going to have a couple of voice lessons because I was this. I was a senior, and I knew the solo was going to happen. And you know, I'm more concerned with my image and looking good because I mean, as I said before, we've had these huge concerts, and they were very well attended. Everybody went to these, and I'm thinking, oh God, I've got to like, I've got to nail this because, you know homecoming court, senior year. I just can't embarrass myself. So I went to take some lessons with a woman who has passed on, but I love her dearly, Paige Swift, who was in the San Francisco chorus, San Francisco opera chorus at the time. Oh, Um, Paige was a mezzo soprano and bless Paige. (laughs) And she says to me one day, darling, I think that you should audition for the Juilliard school. (laughs) we're gonna pay you either way you don't need to blow any smoke i just need to know these notes and just not look (laughs) my friends okay she goes no no no, i'm very serious and she doesn't know we're gonna work on it and she kept you know pressuring me and she kept bringing she'd print the application and she's you know tell your mother to come in i want to talk to her and and i I would always like not tell my mother because i thought i'm not gonna go to manhattan school juilliard what you know, and then I, um, and then I thought, well, hang on. If I audition for the Juilliard School, I could take maybe some adjunct dance classes. <laughs> Again, going back to ballet, I'd be in the city. I'd be out of California, which sounds really amazing right now. And I could maybe take some classes. So I thought about it. And um, I ended up auditioning for Manhattan School of Music. I don't know why I gave up on Juilliard, but hmm. I ended up from Manhattan School and um, actually the president now Jim Gandry James Gandry was actually the dean of admissions at the time at Manhattan School so I actually know him quite well and I auditioned for him in San Francisco and um, he said listen I'm looking at your I'm looking at your your application here and I just wonder if I can make some suggestions I said sure I mean because I knew nothing Evans I knew Bati Bati and hmm. say Crudele in the key of F, which is so <laughs> I think that's what I say. That sounds like a crazy person. Um, but Paige was a mezzo, and so I was training as a mezzo. And of course, right. when I down on my application, Mignon done. 
good. So that's why I picked her. <laughs> it's like, ooh, oh, that's impressive. Um, and he goes, I really think this would not be a good idea. Can I make a suggestion for a teacher? And I, I just admitted to him. I said, listen, I don't know anything about singing. I can't really read music. Um, I just, I've been taught these two songs and I am open to any suggestions that you might offer. And he said, well, what if I offer you a scholarship and I tell you that I want you to come and study with Adele Addison? Whoa. Suddenly my mom, who's in the room, sits up and she's like, okay, we're listening. (laughs) (laughs) You've got our attention. (laughs) (laughs) Which I can totally relate to because now I'm in my mother's position. I'm like, oh, who's offering some money? (laughs) um, Yeah, so I moved to New York City to learn to be an opera singer and to study with Adele Addison. Um, I knew nothing about singing. I felt like a fraud every day of my undergrad degree. Um, I really did not make a decision to make a career out of singing until my second year of my master's degree when Maitland Peters said to me, you know, you're one of the ones that we really just, we, we think you're really going to have a great career. And I said, career? And he said, that's why you're doing this, right? <laughs> Why are you spending all this time and energy if you don't want to go out and sing and make a living doing it? I was just like, you know, I, I mean, I'm just having fun. I love it. I mean, I guess I never really thought of it as a full-time career, which is crazy because, I mean, there's so many other kids that are just, they're, they're like, what do you mean you didn't know? I said, I really didn't. I thought I'd have a job and I would sing on the side. That's, I mean, I also come from a family of overachievers, so I'm the first one that said, I'm going to, you know, music conservatory. All of my uncles went to either Stanford or, um, or, um, Berkeley. So mm-hmm. when I said, you know, I'm going to, which is so typical of me, I, I always say I'm the black sheep of the family. Um, <laughs> I said, I'm going to Manhattan school of music. And they're like, um, you think you're going to make a living at that? Berkeley <laughs> or Stanford. I was like, that's like asking a surgeon to go to MIT. What? <laughs> 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 what are you talking about? And they're just like, but, but we all go. I said, well, I'm sorry, I'm not going. And my mother was, you know, fully supportive. And so I just, I, I really toughed it out. I mean, my whole freshman year, I think I was nauseous every day before my lessons with Adele. I mean, she was literally like four foot 10, but so scary. I mean, she's family. I mean, at the end of it, at the end of the day, but I mean, she's pretty, she's pretty Cheers. tough. She's she, fierce. Yeah. I, I remember one day being in a lesson, <laughs> and if he's out there and he's listening, Scott Redner, who was my pianist at the time, can attest to this lesson. I start mm-hmm. singing, and you know I'm going along, and she's, she would sit next to Scott, at he would sit on the piano bench in her you know her gorgeous Steinway in her in her living room in her music room, and um, she'd sit on a little stool next to him, and look at me while I sing to her, you know, whatever it is that I'm preparing for the day. And I just remember one day she got up and she walked out. Hmm. She just walked out. And I was thinking, um, am I supposed to? And it wasn't like a rush, like, ooh, something's burning or, oh, someone's at the door, hang on. It was just, she got up, she looked at me very sort of like, hmm, and got up and walked out. <laughs> and I was singing and then kind of I slowed I'm like um am I supposed to keep singing and Scott's looking at me and he's like um let's just go back over that section again and I sing she's still not coming back to the room and finally <laughs> I just go leave out of the room and I find her in the kitchen she's like stirring some sauce that she has simmering and I said, um hello <laughs> and she's like oh oh are you ready and I said, oh. what do you mean, am I ready? She goes, oh, I'm just wondering when my student, my soprano, Talise, is going to come into the room to sing. Because I don't know what that uh, was. Uh, <laughs> wow. She was, she was a firecracker. She let nothing slide. Nothing but that's slide great. Nothing. But that gave you great discipline, clearly. Clearly yeah. as an artist. Because yeah. you arrive fearsomely prepared for everything that you do. I think it... It shows in your commitment to new music and something I wanted to back up for just a second, because you said mm-hmm. that, you know, as a, as a youngster, just starting out 
um, playing around with singing, you weren't really that much of a lettered musician. Yet with this fearsome commitment you have to new music, you clearly learned how to read music fairly quickly. I mean, what was that process like? <laughs> I figured it out. I mean, I I spent a lot of time. I had an amazing ear training teacher, first of all, Carol McCauley. I mean, you name any singer in the world that can sight read um, or figure out difficult rhythms fast, they've probably studied with Carol McCauley. Um, mm-hmm. And I just... I. I knew that I had all of these tools there for me and I just dove into everything. I thought, well, I'm here and my mother's spending a lot of money for me to be here. So let's just figure this out. I mean, it's not bad. You know, this is kind of, this is kind of nice being around a bunch of musicians and it was great. I mean, we, at the time singers, I mean, just really intermittent, like one of my closest friends and roommates was really very accomplished pianist so it was wonderful because most of my friends actually weren't singers. I hung around, around a lot of musicians and I was so in awe of their voracious appetite for more and that they knew that they knew that this was what they wanted to do. So I wanted to be around that and, and I wanted to, I wanted more of that. I wanted that for myself. I always say, if you, um, if you are not in a room full of other giants, then you're probably in the wrong room. I, I, I take pride in being the smallest person in my room of giants. And I'm always learning from others and push. You want to be around people who push you. And I just knew that it wasn't, maybe it's also my family, but I was never ever comfortable with just being mediocre at whatever I do. Um, my grandfather used to say, I don't care if you are a garbage man just be the best damn garbage man on the block. If yeah, that's what my father said to me as well. You can do anything you want, but I want you to excel at it. That's yeah. so true. And, you know, make no small plans. I mean, although it was probably something of a hack pay accident, as I recall, um, your first uh, even moderately professional operatic experiences were at Aspen and you had none other than Julius Rudell as your conductor. So oh. talk about starting at the top. Yeah. What was it like working for Uncle Julius as a <gasps> beloved character horrifying. that you were? It was horrifying. I will never forget my first day. And I remember going after rehearsal was over, I went to dinner at Adele's house and I sat down at the table and she goes, well, baby, how was it? And I just burst into tears. I said, I don't think I want to do that. I, I can't do this. You need to ask them to find someone else to cover Pamina. Um, I, I, oh gosh, like I'm getting like heart palpitations thinking about it. I was (laughs) this, I mean, just stunning. Her name was Teresa Santiago. And I think to this day, she is just, she was the most beautiful Pamina and I was the other. And she started Achifus and he didn't like the way she, she, I don't think she got past the first phrase Mm -hmm. and he said, stop. Oh and he goes, what are you doing? What are you doing? You can't breathe like that. Where's the other? Where's what? Come, the come other. On. Please start. That was my introduction. I don't know. Nothing like and being thrown in at the deep end, right? Totally thrown in at the deep end. And then two and a half hours later, he was out playing volleyball with us you know, at, at the, at the volleyball pit. And I just thought, what kind of demonic <laughs> torture? Is what have this? I, what have I gotten myself into? Yes. But you know what? He was so, so dear and so patient with me. And I remember all of my coachings afterwards. And he said, you know, he said, I don't care what you don't know. He said, I see it in your eyes and I see it in your intention that you want to know. And he said, and I'm going to help you. Wow. And it turned out to be the best summer ever. I mean, I, I think one of the many reopenings of City Opera, um, one of the, I think I sang two or three galas for City Opera when they were opening, closing, opening. Um, he was at the first. And he said, mm-hmm. I am so, he was really, really, I mean, really near the end at that point. Mm-hmm. And it just said, I'm so happy to still see you, that I didn't scare you off, that you're still here. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, how wonderful. Yeah. What a beautiful yeah. memory. And, you know, Mr. Rudell has a, a, a long history with Cincinnati Opera. He conducted here in in some of the great last days at the zoo and the early days at Music mm. Hall. And he came back one last time in my second summer to conduct Faust. He was already mm. over 80, and but I mean, completely vigorous and totally with it. And what a joy to watch someone who you know has lived and breathed opera for 60 years and more. And there's nothing, of, what he doesn't know about opera was not worth knowing. It was really mm-hmm. remarkable to be in his presence and such a, a, a genuine, genuine human being too. Yes. What a privilege. What a privilege. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you get started in this crazy career and very <laughs> early on, it seems to Lise, you gravitate towards new music. What's this? Where does this passion begin? Because you've created several roles. You are in the midst of, you know, m- more projects than I can remember of either this new piece or that new idea. <laughs> this, th- I mean, alongside Pamina and uh, Madame Butterfly and I mean, everything else that you sing, but you have a real passion for new music. I do. Um, it probably started from, I mean, literally I did not sing a single aria after my audition to get into Manhattan school of music. Um, hmm. I, in fact, I remember my very first lesson with Adele. She said, that's nice, baby. Um, now we're going to really learn to sing. So we're going to put those things away. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, and one of the, one of my favorite things to do, um, I would volunteer to help her on the weekends, organize her library, which consisted of, not one, not two, but three bedrooms in their penthouse apartment um, in the 80s, at, like floor to ceiling of Goodness music that was written for her, given to her. Um, I mean, I think I have mm. some, I, I still have, I don't think, I know I do, I just don't know which box they're in right now, but um, I have some original manuscript of uh, Boulanger that, that was given to her, that she gave what? to me. So I, mean, I literally learned to sing through chamber music um, and art song. And some of that, you know, Adele, was a, she's probably mostly responsible for that, um, introducing me to all of that contemporary music because it was given to her in spades. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That was a big platform of hers, and, and I loved it. I mean, I thought it was way more interesting than, you know, just singing me I mean, I yeah. thought, okay, well, that's always there, but like, have you seen this? So I never even thought to audition for the opera studio or anything like that because I was just too busy in her chamber group. And I loved hearing the different colors of the orchestra and working in chamber music and learning how to color and color the voice and, and just considering the entire atmosphere. That was always far more interesting to me. Um, and I love the creative process. I loved working with instrumentalists um, or working through something. I liked that rehearsal process. And I think that just translated uh, working with Jake has been a gift. I mean, to have, I mean, I'm really fortunate in that not only have I created roles, but I've created roles alongside some giants in the industry. And it was that process um, that was just I'm always looking for that. You know, I miss, I'm always more excited about rehearsal than I am about a performance, which is um, sacrilege to some people. But I always get a little sad once the rehearsal is over and it's time to open a show because I know it's ending. Um, yeah, the famous conductor George Sell used to say about his work with the Cleveland Orchestra, we actually give um, seven performances a week. Four of them are called rehearsals. Three of them are for the public. (laughs) (laughs) So that kind of exacting, that kind of exacting nature. And the Jake, of course, that you mentioned is Jake Heggie. And I will admit that I was a a relative latecomer to the world of Talise Trevine because the first time I saw you was in the world premiere, the opening night of Jake's incredible grand opera, Moby Dick. And I will never forget the first time I saw Talise Trevine sing was about 35 feet in the air. Yeah. (laughs) So you took on and created the role of Pip in Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. What was it like creating that role? I mean, a, a, a death-defying in terms of its vocal line, but also death-defying because you're you're flying, you're 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 yeah. Peter, you're Melville's Peter Pan, basically. <laughs> no, actually, um, no, actually, it is as close to Peter Pan as anyone could get. I, in fact, I had to adopt. Well, first of all, I just need to talk about that. Um, I didn't really know that I was going to fly until Uh-oh. about, I would say, two weeks to opening night. They oh, really no. It was mostly, I mean, listen, that production, I mean, is just, that production it's astonishing. is, I mean, it was really groundbreaking and just yeah. a massive, massive undertaking. Um, but for weeks, I would rehearse that aria sitting on a stool in the middle of that ship. And I'd look at Lenny, who is now family, Lenny Folia, our director, who is family. And I was looking at him and said, what am I doing? Are you going to direct me in this? He goes, yeah, I've got some, got some stuff for you. And I'd say, okay, oh, okay. No. And I was like, okay. And so weeks would go by and then um, there'd just be, you know, nothing. And I'm going, are we going to stage that scene? Like, I mean, that's kind of a panicked aria. Like, I'm really just going to stand here. In the then the stool would go away. I'd come in and the stool would be gone. He's like, just, just walk with me across the stage very, 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 very slowly. And I just thought, okay, now I've been watching you. We've been living together for six weeks, all day, every day for six weeks. What kind of staging is this? <laughs> One day I went to sit next to him at the table to ask him, I think something about lunch. I was like sneaking in. I was like, where are we going to go for lunch? Um, because he too was vegetarian. So I sat down, I could see in his book, the schedule for the week. And there was a little section that had my name only. And I thought, why is it just my name? And I'm thinking, oh, no. You know, so I'm looking. And then I see that it's a rehearsal time. And it says, Trevine flight time. Oh, no. What is flight time? So finally, I just asked him, what does that mean? He goes, you're going to see tomorrow. And then I came in and they hired this extensive crew to teach me how to fly. And I literally, we explored a few options but honestly the only way to not oscillate and for them to get the best cinematography was to learn to do it the peter pan way i mean there are a couple of ways in which you can put the strap on but it's 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 a lot of work i mean i remembered gosh doing it you know what was my final time in, in washington national i said listen I'm tired. This is a lot of work. <laughs> I was like, Pip's like full grown now with like chest hair. Okay. I think we need to. <laughs> so, I mean, you have to keep your arms and legs literally moving continuously in opposition. Otherwise you will just begin to oscillate and get dizzy and then throw up. I'm sorry, oh, man. But like literally it's, 30 feet it's, and 30 feet in the air over 30, an entire cast. 30, it was actually 35 and a half, but I, I let them say 30, 35. It's fine. But it was a half. Um, and wow. I just remember being in a rehearsal one day and the only woman that was there with me in that rehearsal was Katura Stikan, who remains one of my dearest friends. And she was the assistant director. And I kept saying to her, I was like, she's like, are you, are you comfortable? And I'd say, you know, the strap could be a little, you know, we need to improve this. And she's like, what? where? And I was trying to communicate to her very quietly with all of these men standing around trying to figure out the rigging and, you know, and here's me and the Keturah. She's meanwhile, 35 feet below me. And I said, you know, in the, in the hoo-ha area, trying to be quiet. And Lenny turns and he goes, what's the hoo-ha? Oh no! Oh my God! So He doesn't miss a he doesn't miss a thing. That man, I swear, he has twenty five ears and oh, five brains. incredible, and I just thought, oh my gosh, here I am trying to whisper, and and she goes, um, uh, and so she walks over. He goes, what, just, just someone tell me, are you okay? Because, you know, he was so concerned and they were of course. trying to figure out if this was going to work and, you know, because it's, it was four and a half, it's four minutes and 11 seconds of me up there. It wasn't like just a little feature. And, uh, he goes, what's the hoo-ha? <laughs> I'm thinking, oh God, this conversation. I mean, and it just progressed from there. But then the funniest story is it 
literally in the, if you look in the original book for that production, mm-hmm. along with equipment and with the like the harness and everything, it says mm-hmm. hoo ha pad. <laughs> literally, literally, we spent the next two weeks trying to find the right kind of padding to put in, and they come in the heat. So, can you not? Can you not do this right here on the desk? They bring in all kinds of, you know, the little floaties for the for the swimming pool that little kids use. She's, oh, sure. She'd bring in different textures. She's like, now, can you touch this? How does that feel? And he's like, can you not do this at the table, please? Like, I said, listen, you started it. So <laughs> every day. So we come in and um, it, it was incredible. So anyone who takes on PIP. Here on out, if you ever have to fly, if they're ever in that original production, ask someone about the hoo-ha pad because you're you're gonna need it. It's four minutes and a. But you know, <laughs> but you know the thing, the, the wonderful thing about this whole crazy, hilarious story is that you take you take whatever assignment it seems is given to you, whether it's the most serious role or the most ridiculous situation, and you infuse it with joy and a sense of discovery, and. I'm wondering if you've ever reflected on this attitude that you seem to be able to have, very positive, of course, in all sorts of situations, both joyous and stressful. Um, And it's not just practicality. There seems to be something that infuses your work, Talise, that says, this is an adventure, and I'm really excited to be on it. So let's see how we can make this as interesting and as enjoyable as possible. Um, Where does that come from, that that positivity and that that can-do attitude? You know, I don't know. Actually, now that you put it that way, I thought, oh, I never really thought of it like that. Um, Look, I think that I look at my life and my experiences um, and the family that, you know, that brought me up. And I think I'm so lucky and I don't ever, um, I mean, I've had some really great adventures and I don't ever want to take any of that for granted. I feel really blessed to have been able to say that I am a professional artist. I mean, that is no small feat. And um, I've just, I think we're so privileged to be able to make art every day. I mean, I think about what my life could have been had I actually gone in the way of my godmother and decided to be a corporate lawyer. I mean, mm-hmm. I am so grateful that it didn't turn out that way. And I don't ever, I don't want to ever live with regrets. So I do, I choose things that interest me with um, no regard of someone else's judgment. Mm-hmm. I do things that bring joy that I'm curious about. And I, I always want to approach life in that, with that childlike enthusiasm. I always say, you know, I still get just as excited about the first Zitz Proba as I do the very first day that I ever did this. And the day that I'm not excited about a Zitz Proba is the day that I need to not sing anymore. Um, I had the privilege of knowing uh, the pianist Vladimir Horowitz. Uh, I met him when he was already 70. And uh, one of the things that, uh, I took away from that almost decade of knowing him is that um, he may have physically been someone in his 70s in the time that I knew him, but he was still a child in the very best sense of the word. He never lost that sense of wonder and that sense of discovery and that sense of it's new every time I sit at the keyboard. And I think that's an essential quality for any artist to have is to not get jaded, not regarded as just a job. But right. that it is uh, that it is a privilege and a calling in some yes. ways. But yeah. there's also the practic- there's also the practical side of life. And one of the things that I think is remarkable about knowing you is that you are also a baseball mom. Your son <laughs> is a budding professional baseball player. How did this begin? Did he play ball as a little kid and it just not unlike you sort of crept up on him and all of a sudden it's like, hey, I could do this for a living. What's that journey like? Um, it's, it's actually really funny cause we, uh, Sam was born in, in, in London. So, uh, he was actually British first before he was American. He's has dual citizenship. Um, soccer never stuck and he mm-hmm. loathes cricket. 
So, yeah. <laughs> well, how, it's tough to understand as an American who lived in London for 10 years. And I had some pretty wonderful people take me to cricket matches and it still sounds like Martian to me, but that's my problem. Yeah. That's my problem. <laughs> he also doesn't like chocolate. He's like the worst Brit I've ever met in my life. Um, so, <laughs> but um, we moved back to the States when my son was four and it was sort of in the middle. It's a very odd time of the year. Um, I was fortunate in that my nanny was American and quite happy to keep working and come back home and being nearer to her family as well. So mm-hmm. I really lucked out in terms of being a, a working mom. I really had, um, we've had two, I would not say two, I'd say one and a half nannies and family um, get him through this this far um one who is like already signed up again to his original nanny has said you know listen if you ever need me when you're like back on the road and traveling i'm quite happy to fly into atlanta and go see some baseball she's a huge Ah. baseball so it's so funny um but uh he was in the park actually in riverdale new york i will never forget this and i was actually sitting on the bench you know no mom shaming, but I was trying to learn some music and I wasn't really paying attention. I knew that he was over there. I could see him sort of roughly in my peripheral, but apparently he found a ball and he was throwing up against the wall as kids in the Bronx do. I mean, he's, you know, mm-hmm. doing what he saw and someone comes up, Hey, Hey, whose kid is this? And I look up cause I'm thinking who is yelling in the park like that? And I realize he's pointing to my son. I'm going, Oh God, what has he done? <laughs> First mom instinctual reaction. <laughs> Just like your, you know what? Just like your mother did with you. Oh my gosh. They've called me to come to school. What has Talise done now? You see, it, come, it comes around and haunts you. <laughs> oh, so I get up and I'm like, well, what's going on? I was like, what's going on? You know, and Sam's just looking like, oh, I don't what, what, you know? And he goes, did you? this is your son. And I'm, I'm saying this only because he had a very thick uh, Dominican accent. So I'm mm-hmm. going, yes. And he goes, do you know that your son is a lefty? And I said, yes, I know that my son is a lefty. And he says, do you know what that means? <laughs> I said, He's a lefty. And he said, do you see him throwing this ball? He was like, oh my God. He's like, you've got to get this kid. Is he playing little league? And I said, he's four. And he's only lived here for two weeks. So we don't know what is Little League. I don't understand. Even though I knew what Little League was, I yeah. my mind was so British as a mother. I became a mother in the UK. So yeah. Little League. Um, and he says, no, no, you've got to sign him up. So he goes, I'm going to introduce you. I'm going to give you a card. You've got to take your son to this man. And I just need you to let him see him. And I said, <laughs> Uh, okay. He goes, no, no, no. He, he'll, it'll, it's not going to cost you anything. It's going to be like a camp for little boys. He needs to be playing baseball. And I just looked at him and I said, do you want to go and play baseball? And Sam's like, I don't even know what baseball is, but okay. You know, <laughs> He's like, what's baseball? So, I don't even know what, I don't even know what singing is, but that's okay. I'll go sing in the choir. I know. Doesn't this sound like deja vu all over again, Talise? similarities. I know the apple truly does not fall far from the tree. <laughs> Yeah. So he went to learn, and it turns out that uh, this gentleman, who was very instrumental in teaching my son to learn to play baseball from the age of four, actually it kind of comes full circle because he actually played with my son's mentor. They were both San Francisco Giants. I mean, it's the craziest thing. Like I couldn't wow. make this story up. The men who have, you know, surrounded my son and have decided to mentor him through this process um they're actually all connected in some crazy way throughout his journey so um you know i mean i just think he was this was his path you know he wants to play baseball this is his path um he too is sort of the odd duckling um you know perhaps a two-way player not sure um they can't really compare him to anything. They said, you know, look, there was no Tiger Woods before Tiger Woods. So we just mm-hmm. have to ride this thing out and see. 
which is how, you know, we ended up here in Atlanta. I thought I'm not doing anything for him that my parents didn't do for me. Um, and I had the ability to be mobile because <laughs> that's my life too. And frankly, it's a lot easier to get to London from Atlanta than it was from Newark. So I have four additional flights every day. So <laughs> it's, it's a win-win for everyone. But um, so are you? Are you? I mean, I've heard of soccer moms. Did you become something of a baseball mom? Has your son ever had to say to you, "Mom, uh, don't come to my game. You're too, you just embarrass me." Uh, or have you been? Have you been better at it? I have been told. I, I had been told. He he doesn't remember his selective memory, but he did tell me not to cheer out loud because he could always hear my voice. Um, he's like, I know well, you are a trained opera singer. After I, I, know, I know. So I did listen. I'm quite happy to sit quietly. Um, I mm. think I've missed so much baseball that, um, it really is sort of a, like, that's what this pandemic has, you know, sort of taught me is, you know, you prioritize and, um, while there are many terrible things that have happened, um, you know, to all of my colleagues, the joy of being home and sort of seeing him come into his own and navigate his own trauma with not having a season and, you know, this being a very busy recruit time for him. And we don't know what that means anymore. And it was his first high school season. Technically, you're supposed to have so many seasons before you can be recruited. Now he doesn't have a season under his belt. So what does that mean? Um, very so We're going through very similar things together. Um, and I'm just grateful that we that I've had the time to be home with him, um, because I would be off somewhere, you know. And I've missed a lot of baseball. Um, so while I am a baseball mom, I mean, it is not uncommon for whoever the stage manager is to know all the signs and to be watching the game on my phone while I'm on stage. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. every time you come off stage, you can be told what the score is and whether your son has done well. <laughs> or, I mean, I have been on stage. I have been on stage, maybe not as active, and I've gotten mm. the thumbs up that there was a home run hit or something, or that his inning is good. He's pitching really well. I mean, it, I've Amazing. had many. I'm not going to name any names because I love them all dearly, and I'll never wrap them out. But there have been many people on this journey with me as a baseball mom. Um, oh. And I'm grateful that you can watch games, that you can watch, I can see his baseball games. Um, last, Even last when you're away. You, yeah. When I was with you in Cincinnati, um, my son was here in Atlanta, living in Atlanta, playing baseball uh, alone. He was living with some family, but I mean, he was essentially handling his own self, getting himself mm -hmm. to his practices and things like that. So... Mm -hmm. um, he's certainly braver than I ever was at his age. I mean, I don't. So in other words, uh, as Bess exits stage left and has either a costume change or maybe it's not a scene, Bess is actually off stage left with her cell phone watching her son <laughs> play baseball. <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. In fact, he, yeah, that was, yeah, that was the summer that he literally saved his team pitching in Hoover, Alabama. So yeah. How yeah. wonderful. Talise, we could, and I do want to spend, if you wouldn't mind, another hour sometime soon, because there's so much more to talk about. Uh, you taking on the role of Chochosan and Butterfly, the balance you find between singing the core repertoire and, uh, and being the champion of new pieces, um, what it's like to be an artist in this strange time. There's so many more things I want to talk about. And would you, would you promise to come back sometime soon? Absolutely. Absolutely. You guys are like family. So, uh, well, and we look forward to continuing that family relationship. Although this podcast is designed to be sort of evergreen and perennial, um, I know it's going to be uh, up online in the next uh, couple of weeks. And we should not let our audience uh, be unaware of the fact that you will be singing a concert. Um, originating in Cincinnati, uh, probably almost exclusively virtual for now, of course. There may be a small audience if things change. But you're going to be uh, doing something that's very close to your heart and singing mm. the music of composers who explored exotic poetry, the near and the far east, ancient and more modern times. We're calling it Exotics, and it's with members of the Concert Nova Ensemble, and none other than Louis Langre, the music director of the Cincinnati Symphony, is your pianist in the Debussy songs you'll sing. And you're due to come back to us uh, once already, of course, for Castor and Patience in the summer of 21. And we hope for many, 
many seasons to come because boy, we've got a lot of repertoire to cover together, don't we? <laughs> we do, we do. Well, so Trevina, thank you so, so much. We end every single one of these podcasts with a group of somewhat silly questions, but okay. and you are allowed to take the Fifth Amendment on any of them. All right, you ready for this? I'm ready. <laughs> All right. What do you normally have for breakfast? Uh, I normally have for my breakfast sort of as at brunch time um, after I've worked out, and it's usually a protein shake. Okay. How do you deal with stress? I work out. <laughs> um, you've talked a lot about mentors, Miss Addison, Julius Rudell, but is there is there one among them whom you would single out as being extraordinarily important for you as an artist in general? Oh, hands down, Adele Addison. Um, mm. She continues to inform. I mean, as I sit down and I work through the WC. Uh, here at home, she continues to inform everything that I do to this day. You mentioned earlier that you keep six or seven books going on your nightstand. Um, can you tell us one or two of them that you're reading right now? Yes. Um, one I'm reading is called Fear is My Homeboy. <laughs> hmm. uh, let's see. Everything is, I'm looking at them. Everything is Figure Outable by Marie Forleo. Mm-hmm. And let's see, Mindset by Carol S. Dweck. That's probably wow. my book. Yeah. Um, are there, it sounds like you don't have any time to do anything except inhale and exhale and do a thousand <laughs> things at once. But is there a TV series or a podcast series that you try and catch fairly regularly? I am a huge Anglophile, and I am so grateful that um, Grant Chester is back. <laughs> Uh, 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 I love Grant Chester and um, also uh, Father Brown. Uh-huh. Were you a Downton Abbey addict when it was on? Absolutely. In fact, uh, I went to see. The, I actually went to see the castle. <laughs> <laughs> um, what phone apps do you find the most useful? Uh, Game Changer, <laughs> uh, my Beachbody workout app, and. Actually, it's well, this is really boring, but um, it's called Stash. I've gotten really mm-hmm. into investing lately. <laughs> so doesn't hurt. If you're in it for the long term, it's just fine. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite Cincinnati restaurant? Because I know that you're a vegetarian. You're also a vegan, right? So I mean, you pursue a fairly rigorous diet. Yeah. Yes, I'm. I'm actually alkaline vegan, which is even more specific. But um, mm-hmm. actually, a and I do look forward to visiting them in a few weeks, um, is Conscious Kitchen there. In ah, yes. In Over the Rhine. Sure. Yeah. Sure, they sure. were really sweet. And I called up one day and I said, well, I can't have this and I can't have it. She said, are you alkaline? And I said, I am. How did you know that? She goes, oh, no, no. I have friends that are alkaline. She goes, you know, I can tweak this and that. And so I would just literally walk in and they'd have it ready. So. Oh, how wonderful. Um, it sounds like you've had some good advice along the way. Any particular piece of advice that uh, has stuck with you and that you actually share with others about your career? Don't have any, don't leave anything unturned, any stone, don't have any regrets. And I think particularly now it's important for artists to move forward, um, and their truest voice and their truest self and to not be concerned with if it hasn't been done before or other people's judgment um, of what speaks to your heart, because I think it's really important in order for the art form to continue forward and strongly, we have to really come as our truest artistic selves. And I think that has to be void of any judgment or any concern of anyone else's opinion. If it's what speaks to you and what you feel in your heart and it's your gift to share, then share it because someone out there is waiting to hear it. Do you have a, do you have a favorite musician outside of the world of classical music? Um, <laughs> I listen to a lot of, uh, I listen to a lot of hip hop and things like that when I'm working out. Or Good for like, you. Before, it's great work. It's great for it's great energy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I listen to a lot of a lot of Drake and things like that, particularly before a show. If I am singing a show, you will not hear any Verity in my dressing room. That. Is, is not <laughs> but do you do you warm up to hip hop? 
<laughs> no, I, I mean, I do, <laughs> I do, I, I do listen to classical music. I want to, you know, I don't want to tell a lie on myself, but, um, I mean, I listen to a little bit of everything. I listen to country. I listen to classical. I listen. I don't think there's, um, you're omnivorous as you are in your, as you are, your work as an artist for sure. Yeah. yeah. So last but not least, I always ask artists about their elevator speech. You meet people all the time and, uh, you know, you're, you're standing in line at the checkout and you get a conversation or you're, you know, nowadays we're not as close to one another as we used to be, but, uh, um, you say you're an opera singer and they say opera. Oh, I don't, I've never tried opera. What's your elevator speech to get them to try? (laughs) I, I, I mean, I, I just say to, to someone, you know, listen, you, it's not as inaccessible as you think. And even in his day, Mozart was contemporary. So there's this new fancy, because most people can say, oh, well, but I don't understand the language. So well, now there's this new fancy thing in the back of the seats that can translate mm-hmm. anything into any language, multiple languages, even if you want. And I'm like, really? And I said, yeah. And I said, you know, you should, you know, look, you've probably passed more opera singers than you think. <laughs> we're every they're everywhere right <laughs> i'm not wearing my horns today <laughs> <laughs> touche well Talise, thank you so so much we look forward to another conversation and many many more seasons of working together and uh Good luck with the rest of the summer and uh, with balancing this career of being an opera singer and a baseball mom. Thanks, Thank Talise. Thank you so much. Thank you. These podcasts are produced by John Brennan at Sonic Signatures.